Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and that it goes out into the world, accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it, and that it does not return empty to you. And so we ask now that as we look at this part of your word, that you would accomplish its purpose in us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, being able to see things clearly in this life is really important, isn't it? I mean, I say this as someone who is wearing glasses and as someone who really does not enjoy the feeling of being unable to see clearly. I don't like it at all. You trip up because you can't see things properly. You can get things wrong. And I think in life it can be a bit like that. You don't see things clearly, you have the wrong perspective and you're likely to make mistakes. It reminds me a lot of my favourite party games. So for instance, pin the tail on the donkey. You put a blindfold on someone, give them the donkey's tail and then laugh as they proceed to put it everywhere else except where it's meant to be. Or in my family, we have piñatas. We hang them up, give someone a bat, blindfold them and then get well out of the way as they swing wildly and out of control. Or what about that game Marco Polo, that great pool game, where if you could only open your eyes, well, it wouldn't be much of a game, would it? It'd be just that simple. No, in all of these things, if you could just see the most important things clearly, well, then it'd be so much easier to hit the right mark, wouldn't it? In tonight's passage, I think it's similar that the Apostle Paul is going to ask us whether we have been seeing things clearly. Have we got the right view on reality? Are we seeing the world through God's glasses? And in the first half of tonight's passage, it's going to be to do with the nature of our life, your life and my life, right here tonight. So let's get in and have a look, starting at verse 1. Will you come to the text with me and read? It says, For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Now Paul is saying here that we know something, and he's giving us a picture, a picture of two dwellings or two places where you might live. And if that picture becomes a little bit cryptic, well, we only have to go down to the next verse and beyond to realise that these two dwellings are meant to represent two very different kinds of bodies. So firstly, our body, right here and now, on this earth, in the flesh. And secondly, that other body, a new future body, which God has already set aside for us in heaven. And what Paul's doing is he wants us to make a comparison between the two. He says, you know, this earthly body that you and I have, well, it's temporary. It doesn't last. It can be destroyed by death. But in contrast to that, this body that we've got for us in heaven in the future, well, it's awesome. It's incredible. It can never be destroyed. It's forever. And its location is in heaven with God himself. And you know, knowing this comparison, it causes something to start to bubble up within us, which is that we want that body and not this one. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, Indeed, we groan in this body, 
desiring to put on our dwelling in heaven. Knowing this comparison creates groaning and longing because we want that body because it is better. In verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about these dwellings, these different kinds of bodies, as if they were clothing items, clothing that you and I put on and take off and can change. Look with me from verse 3. He says, Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So Paul's saying that we have one type of clothes on at the moment, this temporary body. And in the future, God is going to give us another, better set of clothes to put on. And it's not like in the future we're going to be left naked. We're not going to be left without clothes. We're not going to be floating around somewhere in the universe as a bodiless spirit. No, the the truth is, friends, that what we're heading for in the future is a real physical body that is eternal and that has its dwelling place with God himself. It's an incredible promise. Now, this current body, Paul describes it as being kind of like a tent. We all know a little bit about tents. They're very good for the purpose for which they're made. So for us in 2016, a tent is fantastic for getting you out into God's glorious creation and for doing some camping. But even though that's the case, I'm not aware of anyone in this world who thinks that living in a tent is the main game. So if if you're anything like me and you're out camping, sooner or later you start to think, oh, look, this is a bit, you know, messy and uncomfortable and it's getting a bit cold and I can't wait to get home and have a hot shower and a nice comfy bed. Well, Paul says, you know, this body of ours, it's a bit like that. It's temporary. We thank God for it. It's wonderful for the purpose for which he made it. But we have something ahead of us that is so much better. And we groan for that. And in particular, we groan for it because all of the human frailty and weakness that comes with living in this body, well, in verse 4, it says that that's going to be swallowed up by life, glorious, eternal life. And in verse 5, Paul says that we have God to thank for it. Come with me to verse 5. He says, And the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. God has done it. God had prepared us for this very purpose. And just in case you're starting to think, well, Samuel, this is a bit rich, you know, is it really that way? Can we really trust this promise? Well, no, God says here that he has guaranteed it. He has guaranteed it by giving us his Holy Spirit as a down payment the first instalment that guarantees what is to come in the future. And friends, I'm so excited to say that our God is not a God who will default on what he has promised to us. And so the result is, in verses 6 and 8, it says that we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, and we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. Friends, knowing the certainty of this promise results in incredible confidence. 
incredible confidence for the future. Yes, it does create groaning because at the moment we're here and God is in heaven. So we don't like that. But it creates incredible hope because this life is fleeting and soon it will be over and we will be with God in heaven forever. It's incredible hope. Now notice that in verse 7 there are naturally implications to this. So it says that now we walk by faith and not by sight. Friends, this is the nature of our life between the times. So on the one hand, we've got the the cross of Christ behind us and the incredible victory that he has secured for us there. And in the future, as we sung about tonight, see him coming, we have the glorious return of Christ. But in between those times where we live, we don't see God with our physical eyes. He's in heaven. We have his spirit within us, but we don't see him with our physical eyes. So we have to walk through this life guided by the certainty of these truths, which we are convinced are absolutely sure. What we don't do is walk through this life as so many of our friends and family members and work colleagues do, just using these eyes, looking at external things and saying that only what I can see and feel and touch, that's all there is. No, rather for us... We put on the spectacles of faith. We read our word through the lens of God's Bible-revealed truth. And when you do that, it's like the pin the tail on the donkey blindfold. It just comes right off. And all of a sudden, you're seeing things clearly as they really are. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now, the Corinthian Christians, they really struggled with this, right? So they loved external things that you could look at. They loved these super apostles who were going to come up later in 2 Corinthians, who were flashy circuit speakers who would roll into town, and they looked like they had it all together. They were so appealing externally compared to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, whose life was marked by suffering, beatings, imprisonments, accusations of being timid and unimpressive, But who was it, friends, who was actually um, embodying cross-shaped ministry? Who was it who was actually following in the footsteps of our Lord? Well, it was the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? And he was able to do it because he had the right perspective of this life between the times. So you and I, we are temporary citizens in this world. We have a temporary resident visa here on planet Earth. And where this is all heading, the point that we're driving towards comes in verse 9. Please have a look at this extremely important verse in verse 9. He says, Therefore, on the basis of this, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing him. Therefore, Paul says, with the proper understanding of how things really are, we're able to make the right conclusion." about what our aim on this earth is to be. Having put on God's glasses and having understood the lie of the land as it really is, we're able to make the only logical conclusion that there is to make, and that is to live to please King Jesus. That whatever, wherever, whenever, the only sensible decision, the only right ambition 
is to live to please him. This life is temporary. That life is forever, and so we play the main game. We play for eternity. But friends, at this point, haven't you got to ask that isn't it exactly what we are tempted to do the opposite of every single day of our lives? Aren't we tempted to make it our aim to live for what we can see, for what's immediately before us, living to please one person and one person only, ourselves? And Satan loves tempting us with all of these sort of things, wrong ambitions, external appearances, wealth, power, or whatever the idols of this age happen to be. But friends, instead, this passage tonight is begging us to ask ourselves whether we've got a firm enough grip on reality to make the only right conclusion, and that is to live to please King Jesus. Well, verse 10 gives us another good reason to arrive at this conclusion. Let's look at verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. The truth truth is that every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, both non-Christians and Christians. But it will not be the same. So for non-Christians who have not accepted God's free offer of forgiveness, there will be just punishment for their sins. But for the Christian, it could never be that way, couldn't it? Because Christ has already paid in full the debt that was required for our sins. Instead, for the Christian, there will be an evaluation for reward. So for the person who has, by God's grace, poured their lives into living to serve Jesus, there will be great reward. And for those who have not as much, then not so much. But in light of this as well, not being our only motivation, but certainly a valid one, in light of this, we aim to please Jesus. Well, where does that leave us? I think it leaves us saying that this life is temporary, that life is eternal, so we make it our aim to please Jesus. But in the second half of tonight's passage, Paul is going to say that living to please Jesus necessarily means acting as his ambassadors in this world in which we live. Come with me to verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade people. We are completely open before God, and I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. Paul is getting us to grips here with the gravity of the situation. He says, you know, the writing is on the wall here. This life is fleeting. Soon, every single one of us will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And rightly reading this situation and understanding it, it spurs him into action. What does he do? He seeks to persuade people. Persuading people to change their mind. Saying to them, look, the path that you're taking, it's the wrong path. There's danger up ahead. Look at it. Come over here to the right path. God has made a better way for you. And as he does this, he seeks to persuade them in a way that is persuasive. But note, however, that even for all of his heart for the people, even for all of his desire to be persuasive, it does not compromise his methods in doing so. Rather, Paul is absolutely concerned to be completely open, completely honest, completely sincere as he gives them the gospel. 
No manipulation, no tweaking the gospel to make it a little bit more appealing to people. Just completely open with God as his witness and before the Corinthians. In verse 12, he says that he's not boasting about this. He just wants them to understand it rightly and for their own good. And in verse 13, it seems as if Paul has been accused at times of being out of his mind. Perhaps it's his intense emotional concern for the Corinthians, or perhaps it's his foolish gospel lifestyle that seems crazy to them. But whatever it is, it's all for them or all for God and never for himself. There's something profound driving Paul in his life. What is it? Well, from verses 14 and 15, we realize that it's the very heart of the gospel itself. Come have a look at from verse 14. It says, For Christ's love compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Christ's love compels us. He's taken a good, hard look at the gospel, and he's come to this conclusion. Every single person in this world deserves to die. But Christ, at the cross, stood in their place so that they didn't have to, so that he could secure for them abundant life for everyone who would but just accept it. And friends, it's incredible love, isn't it? It's incredible, compelling love that demands from us a transfer of allegiance. You know, for me, before I was not really living for Christ, I was living for an audience of one, and that was myself. But now, seeing the lie of the land, seeing Christ as who he is and what he has done, there's no other option for us, is there, than to live to please him and him alone. We must shift our allegiance from ourselves to our Lord and let his love compel us into action to push us forward into the world. Now, this radical shift in perspective changes a lot of things. It also changes how we view one another. We're called to see one another rightly in verse 16. It says that we don't judge each other by external things. We see each other as we really are, either a beloved child of God or as someone who needs to become one. For in verse 17, it says, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. He says, look, get, get the right perspective on yourself and on your fellow Christians. Because if anyone is in Christ, then they are a new creation. God has performed a new act of creation in their life. So our God, who once said, let there be light, and there was, has now said in the life of every Christian believer, let there be life, and there is life in abundance. The old self, it says, has gone. That old self that was dead to God and was all tangled up in itself, living for itself, it's gone. An abundant life has come in its place. 
the Holy Spirit within, a heart of flesh, responsive to God, now able to live to please him, it has arrived in this new creation. And friends, it's a miracle. A miracle of new creation that has come out of absolutely nothing. And again, in verse 18, it says, we have God to thank for it. Friends, I want to say that this is the power of the gospel. This is the power of God for you. And this is the power of God for everyone out there who has not yet been reconciled to God through Jesus. So have we got the right perspective on this? Are we seeing the world, ourselves, other people, as God would have us see it? Clearly, in in this passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a lot of reasons to want to be able to persuade people. But now, in the the final few verses, uh, we're going to be told something else, which is that we actually have a responsibility and a privilege to see people in this world who are estranged from God brought back into full, incredible relationship with him. And Paul calls this the ministry of reconciliation, unpacking it for us in verse 19. Come to verse 19 as we look at those words. It says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. The gospel is about reconciliation. Reconciliation, this this word that means two people in a broken relationship now brought back into a full, beautiful, wonderful relationship once again. And friends, our relationship with God was trashed. We trashed it. We trashed it by turning our back on God and ignoring him, even though he is the God who gives us each breath that we take in this life turning our back on him, treating him with contempt. And yet, amazingly, from the very beginning, God has been at work. He's been at work to find a solution to overcome the obstacle in our relationship, and that obstacle is our sin. Now, how he does this is explained in verse 21. Verse 21 says this, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus, his only son, who lived the only perfect life that had ever been lived in this world, to stand at the cross in our place, to stand in the cross and to take all of our sin upon his shoulders. So that at the cross, as, as God looked at Jesus... He sees upon Jesus' shoulders the sins of the whole world. And at that moment, he pours out all the punishment directed at Jesus on the cross so that it wouldn't have to come against us. And in this incredible exchange, God gets our sin, sorry, Christ gets our sin. It's transferred from our account into his, but it goes both ways. We also get Christ's righteousness. His righteousness, his perfect right standing, gets deposited into our account. And this, incredibly, is how we get right with God through this ministry of reconciliation. And friends, you and I, we live in this world as ambassadors for Christ of this incredible message of reconciliation. 
We represent him in a foreign land. We represent him as temporary residents in this place amidst a people who, by and large, do not recognise his kingship or his sovereignty. Come with me to verse 20 as we look at what he has to say there. It says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We plead with people on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Well, friends, as we close, there are two quick things to say in light of this. Firstly, if you trust in Jesus, if you have been reconciled to God, then this is the most incredible thing in the world. It's wonderful. But in doing so, God has given you a job to do a job that is also an incredible privilege, a job where you are asked to live for him and not for yourself, and you live to stand in this world as his representative and his ambassador, representing his interests amidst a people who, by and large, as we know, do not recognise him as king. So can I ask you tonight, how is your posting as an ambassador in this world going? As you seek to represent Christ's interests in your school or in your university or in your workplace or wherever you happen to be, are you letting God's perspective on things compel you to lovingly plead with people on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God? Or have you found that actually putting the blindfold back on is a lot easier? that actually seeing, not seeing people as they really are, but seeing things by the world's perspective is a lot easier. We all know that feeling, right? And God knows we need a lot of help with this every single day. And we're going to be praying for help in just a moment. But lastly, isn't tonight's passage also asking that other crucial question, which is this, have you been reconciled to God? Have you been reconciled to God? Because if you haven't, God is appealing to you. Christ is pleading with you. Be reconciled to God. Come back to the Father. Come back into relationship with him because Christ has made a way. It's a free gift that is offered to you. It's the most important thing in your life. Will you be reconciled to God? Or if that's something that you know you need to do something about, can I urge you to talk to someone tonight about it? Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Matt, to Troy, to any one of the ministers here about what you could do to accept this incredible offer of reconciliation with the Father that is being offered to you tonight through this incredible word from God. Will you please pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you now and praise you for this ministry of reconciliation. We thank you that you were working from the beginning on our behalf in order to take away that obstacle of our sin so that we might be brought back to relationship with you. Help us now to see reality as you see it, we pray. Help us to live our lives and our world, in our world rightly, being good ambassadors for Christ. We know that we struggle with this. We know that we're weak, but we thank you that you are strong and we ask you for your help in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.